and action. Welcome to a special edition of the Art of the Cut podcast. Hi, my name is Derek Stetler, and I'm a writer, filmmaker, and host of a new filmmaking podcast called The Art of the Shot. The show features in-depth conversations with the filmmakers responsible for crafting the look of the most visually striking projects of our time. The Art of the Shot podcast launched in March, and there are four episodes so far. From Colin Anderson, SOC, the celebrated camera operator behind all of J.J. Abrams' films, to David Fincher's longtime cinematographer, Jeff Cronenweth, ASC. And if you're a fan of the work of acclaimed cinematographer Newton Thomas Siegel, ASC, you'll be pleased to hear that I recently interviewed him for the soon-to-be-released fifth episode, which touches upon his career, his visual approach, and his work on the new Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods. Editing is my first love when it comes to filmmaking. It's what ignited my passion for visual storytelling, and The Art of the Cut has long been one of my favorite podcasts. So I feel very honored to be here to introduce this episode. Listen on to hear Art of the Cut host Steve Holfish speaking with his friend, director of photography David Mullen, ASC. It's actually kind of funny, but David was the first DP I ever met. He was at a coffee shop shortly after I moved to Los Angeles at 21. I had connected with him because of his consistent presence on the Cinematography.com and Roger Deakins forums, where he generously shares his truly deep technical and historical filmmaking knowledge with everyone. David's work includes shooting such films as Twin Falls, Idaho, Aquila and the Bee, The Astronaut Farmer, Jennifer's Body, and The Love Witch, as well as many TV series, including HBO's Big Love and Westworld, and the Amazon Prime series The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, for which he won an Emmy Award. Listen on to hear Steve's conversation with him, and if you'd like more conversations like this, please be sure to check out The Art of the Shot on your favorite podcast platform. There are links in this episode's description to make it easy to find. And now, please enjoy this conversation between Steve Holfish and Director of Photography, David Mullen, ASC. So let's start with color. A lot of that comes from production design. How do you work with or enhance that, or what are the considerations? The basic uh, love we've created for the Alexa camera for the show is, is nothing unusual. It's, it's very similar to a standard Rec. 709, but it's not uh, overly saturated or high contrast or anything like that. It's pretty straightforward just to make things look natural. So most of the color comes from the production line in the costume or when I use colored lighting like in nightclub scenes and things. Occasionally, because we do want to emphasize the color of the wardrobe, I'm cautious about when I use a non-white light on the costumes. I try not to make interiors overly warm because that may shift the color of the wardrobe over. So the lighting tends to be uh, just slightly warm for night interiors, for example. So I'm conscious of, of we producing the colors uh, of the costumes fairly accurately. Sometimes when we're in smoke sets or in overcast day weather, I'll ask the dip to uh, boost the color saturation to compensate. You know, things get a little bland or washed out looking because of the weather. Not to say, can you go up 10% or 5% on the saturation and you'll make that adjustment and then add it to the uh, CDL that goes off to the dailies colors. So it gets added to our dailies. What are some of the difficulties for you as a cinematographer on lighting some of these complex blocking and uh, camera choreography? Obviously, the, the biggest problem is hiding the uh, movie lights. It helps a lot to have the sets decorated with practical lamps that I can use when I just simply can't get a, my own lights and that, that there's some practical source on the uh, performers, which generally helps a lot, but even that can be a problem sometimes because we were in a 
diner doing a 360-degree, a very tight space, and the diner had these low-hanging round globes over the tables, and we were circling someone at the counter, and as we crossed from the back side of the counter to the uh, front side of the counter, the study cam had to pass between the actor and the hanging globes on the uh, ceiling, and these were not practicals that we added. They were part of the diner, and the diner had no dimmer system. It, just, it was just an on-off system. So there is this camera shadow as, as the city cam crosses that point, and I tried to have him go through it as fast as possible. And in color correction, I tried to lighten the shadow that he created on the actors that moment he crossed. So it is uh, fairly subtle. But so occasionally, lighting a scene with practical effects that can be a camera shadow problem with the practicals are level with the actors' faces and the cameras having to cut between the source and the actors. I mean, if it's on stage, I can put the practical on a dimmer and dim it out when it goes off camera and things like that to try to avoid the uh, camera shadowing issue. But as much as possible, I try to get the sets lit mostly with practicals because I don't know where the camera is going to be looking. And that sort of leaves mostly above the frame line for soft lighting like light mats. Occasionally, I will do eye-level lights, but they have to be handheld. I have an electrician actually holding the light mat and uh, dimming it out and ducking behind a wall or something to get out of the way of the camera. And I just can't kind of do it from all over it. I'm not usually a set person, but is it Hollywooding a light when you do that? When you're kind of carrying it or moving it? When you're hand-holding the light, we call it Hollywooding. You know, Hollywooding it basically just means manually moving it out of the way or into the shot or rather than having it uh, fixed onto the stand. So yes, it's a sort of general term for, for a handheld light. Anything that you handhold and move out of the way, like could be a bounce card, you know, or, or something, or even a piece of furniture, you may say that, uh, well, we're just going to Hollywood that table out of the way of the study cam, you know, or something like that. Uh, most editors or filmmakers in general consider themselves to be storytellers. Can you think of a specific examples of how you're telling the story with the quality of the color or the lighting or your choices of lenses or composition? Well, I think every setup, it's about bringing out the humor and the sequence, the energy of the actors. Uh, that's the main goal is to support the, the story in terms of the pace and energy and, and and humor of the scene. Occasionally, of course, you're also trying to make a story point with the composition, either subtly or, or more dramatically. It comes up sometimes with depth of field and focus issues. For example, I had a scene where Rose, the mother, is sitting in the living room by a window trying to relax and have a cup of tea when Joel's mother comes in and starts talking to her and then moves outside into the street and starts yelling at the neighbors. And I decided to shoot that with a deep stop so that you would frame both Rose in the foreground inside and Shirley, uh, the mother-in-law, outside in the street, all in focus together. So the humor of Shirley yelling in the background and Rose reacting in the foreground was, was clearly set up in the uh, composition. The same thing we've seen before we had a shot where, um, again, Rose and Abe were in their cabin and the Catskills talking about their son, who they just found out was in the CIA. And the son is outside in the field playing football with his friends, just outside the window. And while I could have put on normal level of ND and shot it at a 2 or 4, I decided to shoot it at an F-11. So that as they're talking in the foreground, who they're talking about is clearly visible in the background. And the irony comes from 
them saying things like, do you think he's killed people? And in the background, he's tossing the football. So the kind of innocence of him playing in the background is juxtaposed by them in the foreground talking. So those are all kind of story-driven decisions, where to hold focus, when to do a deep focus shot, things like that. Can you think of a composition example of that beyond the the football one? Sounds like, obviously, he's in the shot. I mean, a lot of that is uh, just the blocking, because since we're moving the camera so much, it's not, we don't have often a static frame where everything's sort of told in one static shot, although um, sometimes we do that. It's more part of, I think, and then Claudino's episodes, you'll have a funny shot, which is a static wide shot composition where you see everything in the frame happening all at once um, uh, when they all move into the Catskills uh, cabin in his episode uh, last season uh, season before and the, uh, this season there's a scene where Abe and Rose are in their bedroom two scenes where they're just trying to escape the noise of the house and the maid uh, Zelda comes in and says can I join you and she sits down in the shot so it's just sort of low shot with Rose in the foreground, Abe in the far background, and um, Zelda in the middle. Uh, it's very humorous because they're all kind of deadpan and the shot's very deadpan. I remember a shot, I think it was in the final episode of the season, with Abe and Rose having dinner in a kitchen, in their kitchen, and the maids in the background trying to like get out of there or leave, and just having a, it was a wonderful composition with a lot of headroom that seemed like it was to show kind of the location they were in or we tend to have a generous headroom i think it's part of the classical framing of the show but also jim mcconkey our operator just loves to get practical lamps and things at the top of the frame he likes to keep things in the frame so often i i know that's going to take one he's tilt it up a little bit more because he said, oh, there's a lovely ceiling fan back there. And then, you know, third take, he'll be tilted even a little more. And he goes, oh, there's a great little thing that's running across the ceiling. I thought it would be nice to hold that in. And at some point, I have to uh, keep him from tilting up further because he's <laughs> trying to bring more interesting sort of elements around the edges of the frame. It happened uh, in the Catskills where we had this great rec room set that had wooden flatted ceiling with ceiling fans and hanging lamps. And it just... It was very hard not to keep framing the stuff in because it was just sort of dangling at the top of the frame line. So you're constantly deciding that it's either got to go in or out, you know, but it was just uh, hard to decide. Um, but so we tend to be sort of classical in the framing and also um, not moving the camera too unmotivated unless it's to follow an actor. So if we're doing a static shot in the kitchen, rather than tilting up and down with someone who is standing up and down, which is frame looser so that uh, we can hold the leg room when someone stands up again, things like that. It's just the movement's got to be more about where the actors are going in the space rather than the camera adjusting. And also, we tend not to do close-ups, so our shots are looser in general, so it's, it's a caution about holding what we can in the frame, basically. Totally makes sort sense. Sort of almost attention though, in the framing is that we're... Uh, Amy doesn't like close-ups, so our close-ups are like waist up or navel up at the tightest. You don't want to get too loose on everything because you, you want to see the actors performing. You need to see the emotion of the scene. So it's always this tension of have we backed up too much? And, and if we push in closer, then, then we don't have enough room for the actors to move on the edges of the frame. And so uh, we're always playing that sort of edge on uh, 
not getting too loose, but not getting too tight. So, I mean, it's even harder when we're moving the camera on the study cam because in a tight space, there's moments where it's very hard to not pass close to a foreground actor because there's not enough room to back up the camera and, and circle them at a bigger distance, which is one of the reasons we tend to shoot on wider angle lenses on the show. It's partly because um, the intimacy of being close to the actors with the camera, and Jim McConkey, our operator, loves wider angle lenses, but it's really mostly just practical reasons that we don't tend to pull walls because we do so many 360s. And so with furniture and, and in small spaces, we have to get a wide angle just to stay loose enough on the actors. But they don't want distortion on the actors. Sometimes later I'll get notes on daily saying, why is Susie's hand so large in the foreground in the shot? Oh, well, it's because we shot her with a 27 on the table because we're trying to be inside the foreground person. But when she leaned forward, suddenly her hand got very large and because of the wide-angle lens. So they don't want the distortion to the wide-angle lens. They just want the looser size. And uh, often they also don't want over-the-shoulders. They'd rather have clean single, which tends to push us closer and wider to be inside the foreground person when we go into coverage without getting too distorted. We, we just don't want it to get cartoonish with the lenses. I know there are some DPs that, I don't know if they're rare or not, but they would much rather be operating. Where do you stand on preferring to have your attention elsewhere or operating or, or how that relationship works with your operator? I enjoy working with Jim, and it's good to have such a talented operator on the show. I personally mostly want to concentrate on lighting and the storytelling elements and leave physical operating to the uh, someone who's more talented at it than I am. Um, also, it's just always good to have a second pair of eyes or even a third pair. I've got my camera assistant, uh, Anthony Capello. Now I've got the bit myself. So it's it's good to have people looking out for things in the frame. And so I, I like working with an operator, especially in a show like this. It's just most of it's a Betty Cam or a movie or Technocrane, and I, just, I don't have that level of skills to, to do it myself. Can you make determinations about lens choices as you're reading a script, or do you need to be on set or location for that decision to be made? You have to sort of know what your ground plan is for lenses before you go into a show because you've got to order them, and you're not going to just order every lens ever made. Um, <laughs> and if you've got two camera packages, you try to double up on what you can, but that's really interesting to think of what your most commonly used lens is going to be because you may decide you need two 24s or two 50s or something like that. So you have to have an idea up front, but within the first few days of shooting anything, you start to get a sense of the true style of the show, and that gives you a clear idea what lenses you're going to be using the most often. When we start locations, we'll use an Artemis finder or a lens finder. Uh, over, you know, three seasons, our lens choices have gotten wheeled down to the most common choices. We use a 24, mostly for masters and steady cam. When we can do it on a 27, we will, just so that we don't get too wide angle. We often find ourselves switching back and forth from the 27, 24, trying to find which we like more. We have a 30 now, because uh, sometimes um, the 30 is just the perfect focal length. Uh, it's not too wide angle, not too telephoto. Occasionally you do get a scene or a location, uh, a space where you imagine it would be more attractive or interesting on a longer lens. I 
Edison where Benjamin drives Mitch uh, back to New York City from the Catskills and pulls up in front of their townhouse and it's this big beautiful car on this tree-lined street and I just imagine the master being like on a 50 mil or a 75 just to get the compression of the cars stacked up along the street and the big trees overhanging the street. It just seemed uh, more lyrical than, than a wide-angle shot where you have a giant grill of a car in the foreground. I didn't want the big nose of this giant you know, Cadillac in the front of the lens, I wanted a more compressed shot where you see the front of the car, but it's not giant, and you see them get out of the car on each side of the car in a frame kind of in the 50-50. So a longer lens with a flattening effect was uh, more lyrical and attractive for that sequence. I want to talk about skill development for young cinematographers. One of the things I've known about you for a long time is that you're always image making. Well, it's, it's partly my hobby, I think. It keeps my mind active. I, I just like taking pictures. You just see the world as, as a lens does, sort of thing, and I, I like uh, capturing things. Some of it's like a sketchbook, you know. You see something quirky or interesting, and, and you just want to take a picture of it. It doesn't always reference back to my uh, cinematography. It's Some of it's just uh, for my own personal satisfaction. But I love photography as an art form, and whenever I'm in New York, uh, I'm constantly going to galleries and uh, museums to look at exhibits. And then I go out in the streets and I, I sometimes experiment with styles, you know, like oh, I just saw this documentary on Jay Mizell and uh, now I'm trying to shoot sweet things like Jay Mizell or Robert Frank or I've seen some autochromes and now I'm trying to replicate the look of an autochrome or an 8 by 10 landscape by, you know, Sally Mann or something like that. I just, I like experimenting. Hopefully someday my reflect back on my own work as a cinematographer, you never know. I think it's just part of becoming literate in telling stories through images. You know, it's just like reading books or seeing movies. It's just, you're just adding to your, your sort of literacy. I love the idea you mentioned, the autochromes that you were trying to replicate. When you do that and you're thinking through replicating that look, how useful is it for you to be able to verbalize what you're doing? Like, could you tell me what the look of an autochrome is? You know, I get that question a lot from students often as they say, I want my movie to look like an old movie, or I want my movie to look like it was made in the 70s, or I want it to look like The Graduate. And I tell them that you have to break it down into specifics, because one thing, I don't know what version of the graduate they saw they're referring to. They could be talking about a DVD NTSC copy, or they maybe saw an old print in a revival house, or maybe they saw a new digital projected version. They're all going to be different. So it's kind of useless just to be generic about it. You have to get down into the specifics of color, contrast, grain, the depth of field, um, the sharpness, just uh, stylistic elements, maybe you're responding more to production design or lighting than any technical thing with the camera. Everyone responds to an old image differently and they think that the gaps are different. So I think it's important as a student to break everything down until it's particular. But the caveat being that there are intangibles too that you have to be aware of. You know, they're talking about the feeling of all movies, you're often also referring to memory. I remember seeing X movie when I was a kid. Now you're dealing with the vague area of the gut feeling of what things used to look like. So there's nothing wrong with that as an artist, but you have to recognize that you do get, after you've broken things down to the technical elements, you do get into intangible areas which are not 
easily uh, regrettable. Again, a lot of people see autograph albums in books. You know, they're they're meant to be seen. They're kind of backlit glass photos. You know, the starches are sort of glued or affixed to this piece of glass, and when you shine light behind it, you it's sort of like a glass slide. Now those are photographs of books and things, but it's a different experience seeing an autochrome person than in a book. But also, because autochromes are sort of handmade, they vary a lot between them. You look at a book of autochromes, and some of them are faded, and some of them are saturated, and some of them are bluish, and some of them are orangish. So you've got a lot of variations in the process. They're pretty random at times, the amount of grain, and... 10 by 38 by 10 is a 4 by 5 or something. And then the quality of the lenses, you know, this is all turn of the century, 1920s, whatever, uh, era of photography. So the lenses that we used back then have an effect on the look of the image. A lot of them are large format plate photography, so they have a certain look from that. So I think you, you do have to be able to analyze an image and, and sort of see see it in its technical components, but also realize there's a point where you can't reproduce everything exactly unless you're a scientist and you have access to the highest tech, you know, color correction computers and, and stuff. So, but if you're just uh, monkeying around with your own cameras and lenses and buy your own Photoshop, you just have to recognize that you're only creating your own personal approximation of something and you're not actually recreating it exactly. Let's talk a little bit about that, kind of continuing this discussion of being able to verbalize or understand the image that you're trying to look, recreate, possibly. I've seen a number of things from you on social media where you talk about, oh, look at this old movie, Um, here's what I notice, the hard rim light or whatever it is. What are some of the ways that things that young cinematographers need to be able to do to kind of reverse engineer an image they've seen? Like if they're watching The Graduate, well, how do you recreate that look? What are you looking at if you're a cinematographer and you're saying, okay, here's this still that I'm looking at, what are you doing to be able to figure out what makes that look the way it does? You could do this without knowing how the film is shot. You're not just doing all your own kind of modern tools and and techniques and just sort of guessing or or just replicating it from a purely uh, technical analysis of how hard or sharp or the color of the light. But it's useful for me to know how the film was made originally just to have a basis to why does the set look a certain way or this location, you know, like in the graduate, why is the background view out the window of a certain brightness, why does it get to feel a certain way? So it's, it's useful to know that, you know, the speed of the film stock was 50 ASA, let's say, and they're likely to push it to a rated at 100 or say that the lenses, you know, these Panavision zoom lenses really a 5.6 or 4.56 split lens, so you're going to get that kind of depth of field, you know, and then, but you're shooting these lenses wide open, so you may have different sharpness fall off. Once you, and you, you know, what the sort of lighting instruments they might have had, you know, tungsten vanilla lights inside, maybe boot arcs outside the windows, or maybe they gelled the windows and the, Tungsten, and once you start to know that the faces are probably lit with tungsten finels versus open face bounced off cards or whatever you've learned or can figure out, that's a good grounding to start to try to replicate it yourself. Whether or not you end up doing using modern lights and doing your own take on it, because 
it's not 100% necessary to use old tools to recreate an old look. It's just, it's good to know what they had to work with. And you get a sense of, you know, once you know the film stock was 50 ASA or 100 ASA, you get a sense of how bright the light levels must have been just to shoot it at 2 8 or a 4. And that will affect the ambient levels in the room. It'll affect the contrast. You know, you will have to use more artificial fill light because you your key light levels are so high that there's no natural ambient fill. You have to sort of provide it. Um, and that affects the style and things. And if I'm doing it yourself in a short film or practicing it, I think you'll learn very quickly some of these issues. The fact that I came out of film and 16 millimeter super reversal uh, before film school, and then I started shooting 16 in film school. And my first few features were even cut on a flatbed, so I actually had film dailies for my first uh, two features. If you learn a lot by shooting and printing and projecting these film images, even if later you no longer are printing things, you're doing it all digitally, having an understanding of, of the positive, negative, you know, system and uh, how print stocks affect the way a negative is reproduced. It's all useful information and skill to have. If Marvelous Mrs. Maisel was shot on film and projected, what negative stock and print stock would you want? <laughs> it's a good question because we shoot on the Alexa and I mostly shoot at 500 ASA on the Alexa. So obviously if I didn't want to change my line package and style and the way the sets are rigged, then I would use 5219 now, that's, that's the only 500 stock. I know that the print stock is also really important. What would be considerations for choosing a print stock? Well, there's only now uh, just vision, so not really any choices, but back <laughs> then when there was vision premiere, that would have been an ideal stock for this year. And then I might have to light a little more fill to compensate for the contrast, but um, that was a beautiful print stock. When you have a scene that is very emotional, that you know is going to be difficult for the actor to do over and over again, or even to do because of just emotion, does that play into your choices of setups or lenses or angles or anything? Well, I think that's most of the directors uh, call about the angle, but I mainly just try to um, avoid having to do any adjusting of the lights between setups and between coverage because the director will want to go again and again and again and then maybe move in closer right away so there's not going to be time to fix anything. So I think it's very important at that point to design the lighting of the master so that it doesn't need changing in coverage. Yeah, it's not always possible, but I try to think of it in those terms. What's the, what's the least amount of intrusion I can put into the set once I'm done, you know. Once I've finished fighting, I just pretty much have to leave it to the actors uh, and the director. I think that's the main thing. You know, you can get into a, a shot design that may be so complex that it's distracting for the actor to remember how many positions they have to move or where they have to adjust themselves. I, that's more a conversation between me and the uh, camera operator. You know, we'll notice there's a certain problem of getting tight or headroom problems, and the operator will say, well, they're, you know, they're like a foot past their mark, or, or I've got this thing in the way and I can't back up any further, and I'm like, well, we're at a point where we can't, you know, give the actor notes uh, because they're in the middle of their emotional performance, and I don't want to try to tweak their positions because it's 
trouble for the camera, so we'll just try to make it work, you know, we'll maybe move some furniture out of the way so you can back up another inch, or just live with it, and if the director seems fine with it on the monitor, then you can just you know, go with it, but it's not going to be a perfect frame, but it's not worth, you know, throwing the actor off by having to make adjustments at that point. What was that transition like from film to digital, and when did you finally feel comfortable that the image wasn't being compromised? Basically, by 2010, when the Alexa came out, I, you know, it seemed that uh, digital was technically at least on par with 35 millimeter to the point where you didn't feel like it was a disappointment to your digital. It wasn't the same thing, of course, but it was not uh, a compromise, so to speak. Before that, you had decent cameras like the Panavision Genesis, um, which was pretty good, but, you know, it was different enough from film that there were certain things you, you still preferred about the film, and it's particularly dynamic range. It's very hard to beat the uh, overexposure attitude of color negative. I think uh, the Alexa comes the closest. You know, when I started out in film, the problem wasn't, there was only film really in the 90s in features. Uh, I only did one Super 16 film, everything else was 35 millimeter. The biggest issue was after um, film dailies in a way, was that low budget films just had VHS dailies and those were just terrible. And then after a few years, VHS dailies became DVD dailies, which were slightly better. But you really didn't have HD dailies. Uh, they weren't affordable, not until the 2000s. And even today, still, with film dailies, uh, they're probably going to be now streaming, you know, they're going to be on Pix or, or something. Um, and you got issues of streaming, those sort of things, and watching dailies on an iPad. It's just not the same thing I prefer. Both film and digital, is we, we get still frames from the dailies. With uh, Maisel, we get uh, 3K. We get 3.2K, so I get 3.2K stills off the uh, dailies files that get mailed to me in the morning. And I know what the show will look like because I saw it on the HD monitor. But it's nice to collect these stills and have them as reference. And you can really spend your time you know, zooming in and starting the still. But if I was shooting film, I would get HD frame grabs. And I prefer those some ways to win video dailies because uh, at least the uh, still frame would be much less compressed so I could actually see sharpness issues. Um, once I played it in motion, usually the uh, compressed streaming dailies and, and it's very hard to judge whether things are sharp or not. Do you think it's important that I be watching dailies and editing with a proper LUDed calibrated image? Do you think it could alter my perception of how I'm cutting to not be looking at the image the same way you were looking at it? I think it's important that the editor is looking at something pretty close to what it should look. I think if there was a problem with the shot, you know, if they're looking, if they're editing log dailies, for example, let's say they were just looking at a washed out log image, it might affect whether they're using a shot that is actually usable. It may be an underexposed shot that, you know, once you put the Rexilar 9 light on too, it's much too dark to use. And once you lifted it, it would be much too noisy to use. So it's important to uh, to get something close to accurate in the editing room. So they're using usable shots, essentially. And if there's some weird color mismatching everyone should sort of know that's going to be an issue so that often the editor will send notes to me or send notes to the post supervisor saying you know there's something wrong with this shot here 
mostly it's focus issues you get, you know, that's about all oh, this, this, this take was a little bit soft and I think it's important that editors work with enough resolution that they can judge the sharpness of the shot so they don't, you know, if they had to choose between two takes and one was off, you know, but they can't tell because they're working from such an impressed file, that could be a problem when there was a sharper take that was available. Um, it could be no awesome enough performance. To, I think working with good dailies and, a, and having a large TV monitor in the editing room is important. It's important for the director and important for the editor in the editing room. I've experienced some level of temp love on <laughs> the way an image looks in editing, even if it's not as the DP wanted it to look. Once the director has sat with it for six months in an editing room, they're like, oh, this is what the movie looks like. Yeah, it's a real problem. And I, that's why I think dailies have to be pretty accurate because you could fall in love with or get used to the way it looks in dailies. I think it's particularly true if you're planning any post effect like diffusion in post. A lot of people say, well, you know, you can save all the diffusion effects to post. There's always the use of diffusion filter on the camera. And I'm thinking like, well, if they look at a completely sharp image for three months in an editing room, they're not going to want to apply the diffusion filter after that when they go into final color correction because they've been looking at a sharp image for too long. I think something like a diffusion effect has to be in dailies. Mm-hmm. It's pretty hard to do it, you know, in the daily colors to add it. That's why I'd rather do it in camera. You know, day for night, other things like that, too, can be an issue if they're not accurate. What kind of collaboration do you do with or have with your colorist before or after the shoot? Well, to start the show, uh, I worked with the colorist to the blood for the monitors on the set with the did and myself and the dailies colorist, or the, actually the final colorist. We all work together to create a lot of shoot tests and pre-production and I color correct them in the post house and then we create our lot that we're going to use in the camera and the monitors. The uh, colors and I will basically set looks for scenes if I'm not available to color correct from the start. You know, I might go in before they start and just set a look for the first uh, frame of every scene and then I'll come back later. But uh, on a show like Maisel, we've had the same color as pilot. So he knows the look of the show and, and he, you know, for the last for all three seasons, he basically color corrects the episode first and then I see his correction at light iron and I give him my notes and he makes adjustments and then he creates a second version and that's what the director sees when they go to the mixes stages and they'll preview my correction with the colorist's version and then they make a few more adjustments after that. But uh, I pretty much leave it up to Steve Bogner, our colorist, to you know set the look of the episode because uh, he's done every episode, so he knows what it is. And it's not you know a big difference between dailies and the final look. I, I try to get it pretty close on set, and that's one advantage of digital. You know, with film, there can be a lot more variation from dailies to a final correction. I don't know too much about the specifics of the digital cameras, but I do know that back in the HD and even SD days, choosing which camera you wanted to shoot with was very similar to choosing a film stock. Would you choose a specific camera, a RED or ARRI or something else, because of the look that it was going to grant you, and and what would that be? Well, it was much more important in the days of Rex 9 when you were baking in the color gamma and 
gamut into the uh, final image, basically coloring in camera. So you were giving yourself much less flexibility in post. But once log and raw recording came along, there you can match cameras a lot easier now that uh, you, especially if you use something like Aces and you're really matching a range of cameras on the same show. I haven't used Aces myself because most of what I do is single camera. We're not trying to mix in three or four types of camera and we're not mixing in a lot of visual effects. But today, you know, you tend to judge cameras a little more like by speed, sensitivity, noise, dynamic range. Uh, color is generally something you can uh, create in post working from the log data. Although there are differences still between the cameras, it's, and it's something you can test for. I think you're more likely to pick a camera, you know, beyond budget reasons by the resolution, the dynamic range, the size of the sensor, which will affect the lenses, the field, uh, maybe the workflow. You know, the Alexa uh, Airy cameras in general have this amazing uh, overexposure range that the other cameras don't quite have. It's not just the dynamic range, but it's how they've engineered their log version to roll off uh, the clip point more gently. And that's something you always see in, when you do comparison tests. It's, it's where the point where something burns out to white is where Alexis tend to be the most organic looking. Although the last generation of other cameras have gotten pretty close. I, you would tend to pick a camera today based on do you have to deliver a 4K version? Uh, do you want to use a large format sensor? What sort of size and weight of the body is like? Are you going to use it on a Mobi or Steadicam a lot or, you know, in a drone? It's the sort of physical factors will be an issue too. That the look is a little less big than it used to be because we, we have more access to the sensor data than we used to before we were dealing with a processed image that, was, that had broadcast gamma baked into the recording. How do you keep growing as a cinematographer? What do you do to continue to get better? I think you try to uh, educate yourself not only on current trends and technologies and stay up to date, but what people are shooting, you know, what, what's out there. You try to keep an eye on what's playing on streaming and in theaters. But also, personally, I keep going back to the world. I keep talking to all classic movies and also the movies I saw as a college student that inspired me to go endless photography. I just want to uh, go back to the things that attracted me originally and, and try to get re-inspired again uh, by those sort of things. I try, tend to take a holistic view of cinematography, like I look at all 100 plus years of it and try to find elements from every decade that, that I would like to see come back or... or or see if I can find a way to sneak some element of that back in there's something rather than be a completely current trends and sad follower, uh, try to be a little more general about that. But so I think just watching movies and reading uh, is about them and is important. Um, talking to your fellow cinematographers and talking to the vendors and, and seeing what's going on, just being up to date with, uh, with everything. But you have to really go constantly go back to the emotional things that they about image making and whether that you get that from watching a classic movie or going to an art gallery or a photo gallery and or going on Instagram and looking at new 
images created by new artists, whatever it is that uh, gets you excited, I think you have to keep doing that because uh, that's what's going to sustain you, you know, more than the technical side will. David, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate everything that you uh, talked to us about today. Great. That was fun. Thank you for listening to The Art of the Cut with Director of Photography David Mullen, ASC. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of the podcast, and please be sure to check out The Art of the Shot for more conversations like it and many more to come.